and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a good afternoon also in Johannesburg to、uh, Lucy Corkin, who's a research associate at the Africa Asia Center at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. Lucy is with us all week this week to talk about.、Uh, we talked earlier about Sino-Angolan、uh, relations, and Lucy has done a lot of research,、uh, not only in Africa but also in China. And we dug up one of her older papers back from 2011.、Uh, again, Lucy, you, you, one of the things you need to work on is your writing is excellent. I love your writing; it reads very, very well. But your titles are just so dry. Oh, they're awful! Do you know? Do you know what the、it's、problem like, is? Is that every time, every time you try and do something, the problem with academia is that when they try and have a sense of humour, you end up trotting endless cliches.、Ugh. And I have vowed in my career never to have chopsticks or dragon or enter in any of my titles. Nice,、so、and no, and no red, by the way,、titles. either. The you know no, nothing red, red no of red. any kind. So、uh, let's. No, we, we did this I, in the I, last I show, <laughs> and it's always appreciated when the cliche police are out, but.、Uh, Uh, again, the the title is misleading here because the title is dreadfully boring, but the essay itself and the article is fascinating.、Uh, Redefining foreign policy impulse, impulses towards Africa: the roles of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Commerce, and the China Exim Bank. So, if that sounds a little technical to you, it, it might. But what it basically talks about, and we're going to get Lucy to kind of paint us a picture about how foreign policy in Beijing towards Africa is actually done. One of the things that confuses a lot of people is that traditionally in European and in the United States and、uh, even in Japan,、uh, Kobus, you can talk about this. Foreign policy is concentrated as a political activity, usually done as an extension of the executive branch of some kind. So in the United States,、uh, the political leadership of Barack Obama controls the foreign policy through the State Department and increasingly, to some extent,、uh, the, the Defense Department. But for the most part, the political leadership drives foreign policy. And what Lucy's kind of painting us a picture is that it's not very clear in China who is making foreign policy because it's spread out among a growing number of ministries and a growing number of constituencies. And also, one very key point here is that Chinese foreign policy, for much of the past, say, thirty years up until the past fifteen years, was done by one person. Usually, it was、uh, usually a charismatic leader of some kind, Mao Zedong being one person, then later into Deng Xiaoping and into Jiang Zemin.、Uh, but today, much more, we're seeing the bureaucracy take a bigger control. So, you know, Lucy, I've kind of set it up here,、uh, you know, and I wanted to kind of talk about the competition that you you kind of lay out between. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs, what we'll call the MFA, and then MoFCOM, which is the Ministry of Commerce, and then the Exim Bank. So, to get our conversation started onto the right note, can you just do me a favor and outline kind of who are those three major players and why are they significant、uh, in terms of building African foreign policy? Absolutely. Well, I, I think if we if we go back、um, to sort of. To look at the change that has happened in terms of、uh, China's relations with African countries,、um, we're all very aware of, you know, this this long history that of, of of political relations that China, you know, says it has with with African countries. But we're also very aware that the, this was very much of political overtones. There was a huge amount of diplomatic rhetoric. It was it was all about solidarity in the face of the Western imperialists, and so as a result. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs was incredibly important because obviously that was their realm, and that was the role that they had in terms of 
creating that political space and, and interacting with their African counterparts. But now if we fast forward a couple of decades, no one denies that the economic nature of, of China's relations with African countries has become much more to the fore. We're talking of course, China's need for, for, for resources uh, fr from which it gets from Africa, iron or aluminium, a whole lot of industrial materials, petroleum, and pretty much anything else that you can, you can dig out of the ground and stick into a factory. And as a result, because the economic side of this relationship has, has become so much more important, what I try to lay out in the article is that the minister, uh, the MOFCOM, so uh, the Ministry of Commerce, which also has the added benefit of dealing with uh, sort of external commercial relations as well, at times has actually become um, has actually become much more important. You know, Cobus, one of the key points that uh, Lucy brought up in her piece, and I'd like to get your take on, uh, was one challenging, what we've talked about a lot, are the narratives. And, and oftentimes people think of China as this kind of monolithic, communist, you know, centrally planned, a la, you know, the Soviet Union of the 1970s. And I think she kind of smashes that. And there was another point that I wanted to get your take on, is that overall Africa, despite the fact that you and I spend every week talking about it, and there's a lot of hype, and if you do a China-Africa news search into Google, you're going to get an enormous amount of coverage, as we point out on our Facebook page. But at the end of the day, it's almost insignificant in terms of China's overall balance of trade and its actual investments. I mean, uh, in Lucy's piece here, she talks about that it represents, back in 2010, 4.2% uh, of China's trade and only 2.7% of global investment. So taking those two pieces together, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I, I think um, one also has to, to keep in mind that you know that that for for a lot for a long time in Western discourse, Africa was seen as this, as this big problem to be solved. So having having new developments in Africa, that itself um, you know generates a lot of discourse, and frequently I think it, it it generates maybe more than it really than it's really justified, um, as as you pointed out. Um, but at the same time, I think it also you know it's it's more fundamental in the sense that um, what it also points to is. Is, is this you know a new a new kind of I don't want to say world order but a, you know new new um, series of, of power relations where where the West isn't necessarily always you know a, a point that is passed in in every, every kind of transaction you know where, where different parts of the world are communicating and trading with each other and the West is decentered to a certain extent and I think that probably also you know in, in you know my, my work relates to the kind of discourses around this stuff rather than the actual investment themselves, um, and I think in, if you if you follow the, these streams of discourse, there's a certain amount of of anxiety and interest um, and, and t attention to this process where the West is kind of being shifted out of of particular kind of relationships, um, and that I think is 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 more fundamental rather than the, the the numbers now. You know, kind of the numbers will will probably increase in the future, but but the the shift in relationships I think frequently feel more fundamental. I don't know if you guys agree. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. because So you're talking about this South-South trade, and that might actually explain a little bit of the alarmist attitude that you see in a lot of the commentaries on the media and, and whatnot. Lucy, what's your take on this in terms of you know the amount of attention that's afforded to China-Africa relations? And you look at this maybe in Brazilian-African relations, it's the same thing. Uh, but you know China's relationship in the Gulf uh, and in the Middle East – 
is far more valuable and far more lucrative and far more important to China, but yet gets a fraction of the coverage that the Africa relationship does. So kind of touching on Kobus's point, what's your thought on that? It's, it's, a, it's, it's, really, it's a really interesting it's a really interesting debate. And I suppose um, my take on it is just that although it would never be said outright and most diplomats would deny it out, deny it outright, but Africa has always really been seen as the playground of, of Europe and to a certain extent American investors in various, um, in various industries such as particularly the petroleum, the petroleum industry, which is where, um, where the U.S. is heavily involved. And as a, and it's it's never really been seen as something that had to be competed for because of a long history of engagement because of you know, um, you know the colonial history and the fact that there have been commercial and political actors deeply embedded in African political systems for a very long time and and it's not necessarily the fact that it's happening but just the speed at which China has managed to make a marked uh, market entrance, but also very much um, a political impression on on African countries. And the fact that it's it's also that the entire, as, as Kobus mentioned, the entire dynamic has changed because African countries are so used to looking north and used to looking for whatever it is, for foreign direct investment, for foreign aid, for advice, for sponsorship. And suddenly the world has become much more sort of multipolar and in a sense the reason why I think particularly in Europe I couldn't believe how how strongly it was felt but the reason why there's such a fear is that it's almost like the relationship with African countries is it's the last vestige of European countries seeing themselves as global powers which is the reason why Portugal fought so hard to keep its colonies right up until 1975 and the reason why France still has so many fingers and so many pies in West Africa because it retains that sense of having a global presence of being a global power because particularly now in the wake of the financial crisis, a lot of wind has been taken out of the sails of, of, of European countries and the European Union. And I think it's at the end of the day, it's, it's actually it's, it's quite a punch to the ego. Yeah. Well, we talked about that in our recent show on France Afrique as well. Uh, and, the, and the really the rapid decline of French influence in Africa. But, you know, in terms of China, one of the advantages that, uh, that when we talked with Ambassador David Shin about the advantages that the Chinese have over, say, the United States is that there is one phone number to call. That is when the, you know, secretary of, or the minister of trade from, you know, any African country wants to deal with his counterpart, he can call up directly into Beijing, get the minister of trade, and, and there you go. And in the United States, you know, we have such a, a fractured political system that, you know, if a minister calls, he's going to get sent around to 15 different, uh, you know, different agencies before he actually gets some Somebody in a, in a small country won't get the attention. One of the things you bring up in this interesting essay is how foreign policy more and more is being fractured, and that even on the ground at the embassies, that there's a separate building for the embassy, which is really under the domain of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and that MOFCOM has another facility somewhere else. And so I wonder if China, as its foreign policy begins to evolve, will end up looking more and more like the fractured nature of American foreign policy or even other European capitals, which are nowhere near as cohesive. Oh, absolutely. I think it's completely inevitable. And you mentioned earlier the the sort of the technocratic or the bureaucratization of, of Chinese 
policy making, not just in the foreign sphere, but in in domestic policy as well. And I, I think that this is this is a symptom of that because now. You don't just have one man making all the decisions in a direct line. You have a series of competing interest groups. So, you know, even if you look at if you look at the different oil companies, in in theory, they all work for the same government. They're all national oil companies that that you know that are, that belong to China. But at the same time, they have their own their own plan, their own ideas for for expansion, both domestically and. And um, in, in the international arena, and very often, these plans are not necessarily in line with with what Beijing, in the political sense of the word, would want them to do. And as a result, there's a huge amount of internal lobbying and internal influence peddling that happens, possibly in a different way to the systems that would happen in Washington or Brussels. But I think. With the same sense of tension in terms of who is going to manage to get their agenda pushed into the right ear in order for the cogs to move in the direction that they wish them to go. Um, you in in this paper, um, you've you've traced a, a kind of decline in influence in, in of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in relation to in comparison to the Ministry of Commerce, saying that the Ministry of Commerce has in a way increases influence and and a while ago the ministry of foreign affairs was able to to adapt deals or to, to you know kind of to to, to influence a certain amount of influence um, influence in in the way that certain deals were made but they've lost some of that influence have you seen that continuing since the publication of the paper and into the xi jinping era as well Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, again, because of the, the much more economic nature of, of China's relations with African countries, we, we spoke about it in, in the previous podcast, but China Exim Bank and China Development Bank and the, the Chinese financial institutions that are creating an enormous footprint on the African continent are much more likely to chat to the um, to, to chat to Mafcom and the Ministry of Commerce. And in fact, in terms of the process whereby uh, China Exim Bank will extend credit lines to, to an African government, um, there has to originally be a framework agreement between the, the, the recipient African government and the Chinese, and the Chinese, um, the Chinese government. And the signatories of this framework agreement are Mafcom on the Chinese side and the African uh, Ministry of Finance. So the Mafcom is actually integrally um, involved in the credit line process and is a huge participant in the decision-making process of the projects and the vetting of the projects. And because you have all sorts of financial uh, considerations, they are much more involved on the technical aspect as well. And in a sense, the the the, the, the sense that I got from a lot of the conversations that I, I've had with, with various stakeholders in Beijing is that the Minister of Foreign Affairs is only really called in when there's a diplomatic fire to put out, and otherwise it's just the gloss that is sort of put on at the end of the at the end of the agreement, just to make sure that everything looks lovely from a from a political capital perspective. So, would you say that that's the biggest misunderstanding that the outside world has about uh, Chinese foreign policy in Africa? That in fact, that it's not the Africa desk at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that drives policy, but it's rather. Uh, the West, uh, with, I think it's called the West Asia Africa Desk at MOFCOM that really drives the policy more than any other uh, establishment in Beijing. I think it's, it's also difficult to say absolutely who has more influence because I think more and more 
um, even though you have a sense of the bureaucratization of policy making, I think that this, the system is definitely personality driven. And you can, se- you can see that with, if you look at the embassies, um, the Chinese embassies across the African continent, the ones that are particularly successful or the ones that seem to hold a lot more clout within uh, their jurisdiction are the ones that have a very successful ambassador who's managed to carve out um, a really good sphere of influence and has managed to manage on 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 a personal level his role within that particular country. Um, and so I, that so would be somebody like Zhong Jianhua, for example, who was the ambassador exactly. in South Africa and then became kind of Mr. Africa for China. Exactly, exactly. And, and there, there, are number, there are a number of, 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 those, um, um, of those ambassadors who, and they're not necessarily in the most important countries, although generally speaking, uh, given that they would be senior diplomats, they would be sent to, to possibly the countries that have more challenges with their relationship with China. But there are a number that have managed to really, really, really carve their mark and are probably set to become um, African diplomats, which ironically is actually, it's not the most prestigious sphere of diplomacy to work in in um, in China, but if you can carve your name out, then, then then you might as well. But I think that personalities do actually have 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 an influence on on this system. And the one thing to I suppose the best way of looking at it is that it's a system of, of plates that keep shifting. And it's you can't say absolutely, well, this is the way that it all works and these are the ones that have the most importance. I think it, it depends very much on how these plates move together and how these how these interest groups have their, their various interests align or misalign depending on the issue that, that we're looking at because we're dealing with a very, very complex set of, 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 of different government agencies and then also more co- uh, commercially oriented agencies um, such as the, 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 Chinese state-owned, the Chinese state-owned companies, um, both at essentially a central government and a provincial government level. Um, I wonder if we could bring it down to to the role of the Exim Bank a little bit. Um, you've you've made in a lot of your writing. You've made the point that you know uh, some perceptions of the of the Exim Bank um, is is mistaken in the sense that that they don't just kind of bulldoze in and throw around money, you know, um, but that they they're very cautious and you know they 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 gauge risk very effectively. Um, However, like who who do you think you know kind of who who really makes decisions in terms of like the you know in funding this particular project in Africa versus that particular project is that mostly just simply seen as as whether the the investment is healthy and whether they'll be able to make their money back or is there also a a kind of conversation going on with uh, Mofcom, with MFA, and, and other players within within China about like which which kind of projects should be should be supported for a whole host of reasons. I think that very much depends. I think I think particularly a, a good decade ago, I think that the political the, the strategic political significance of creating a relationship with an African country held a lot more weight. First of all, because China was incredibly interested in actually making its mark in Africa, and you need to be a little bit more aggressive in the kinds of, of, of strategies that you're going to promote if you if you need to take a crack at a market that you don't have a particularly large presence in. And I think increasingly now that China has actually got a presence, they can be a lot more prescriptive in terms of the, the countries that they're prepared to deal with and the conditions on which they are prepared to deal. Everyone um, 
makes a, a big song and dance about the fact that, you know, Chinese aid or Chinese credit lines come with no, no strings attached. They come, and this is, not, this is not necessarily true. You have to, as a recipient government, um, acknowledge the One China policy, uh, which has become less and less of an issue. But on top of that, there are a huge number of, of economic and financial strings attached in terms of the way that this credit line um, is actually managed and is actually put together. And the way that China Exim Bank um, controls it, to come back to your point, is that China Exim Bank is not going to lend to a country that cannot be shown to have a, a direct revenue stream that will be able to repay the loan, which is why, for the most part, you see these loans being extended to resource-rich African countries, because you can use the commodity that is being mined or that is being extracted um, as collateral to repay the loan. Um, in the case of Ghana, before oil was discovered, Ghana actually had to pledge a certain number of tons of cocoa beans to repay the loan that they had undertaken to um, have the Bui Dam constructed. Now, you can imagine how much cocoa they would have had to pledge to China. And China is not known as the largest market of cocoa in the world, despite, you know, their population. But it was set up that there was absolutely no doubt that this was the amount of commodity that was going to have to be used um, to pay back the loan. In the case of Ecuador, it was actually a huge thing because Ecuador wanted a similar kind of loan and they didn't actually have the commodity. So the China Exim Bank actually wanted to have access to um, assets that fell under um, the National Reserve Bank, which is actually contrary to that country's constitution. So the, the entire deal fell apart. It got slapped down. Well, uh, this is a couple other interesting points for our listeners who may be familiar to unfamiliar with this uh, this the kind of arcane politics here. But it's important because, you know, unlike the West, there is no dedicated Chinese aid agency. The aid agency with in China comes out of the Ministry uh, of Commerce, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important. Uh, we'd also recommend that you take a look at um, you know some of Deborah Braudigam's writing on this because this is really one of her specialties. Uh, China Africa Real Story is her blog. Uh, you know the article is redefining foreign policy impulses towards Africa, the roles of the MFA, the MoFCOM, and China Exim Bank. Uh, Lucy, interestingly enough, one very quick point because I know we're running out of time here that you didn't really talk about in this piece, and it might be just because you wrote this piece back in 2010, 2011 is the role of the PLA. And we're seeing greater military activity off the coast of Somalia. We've talked about the, the PLAN uh, making port calls into Algeria, into Libya. Uh, there's more peacekeeping operations going on. Very quickly, in, in 30 seconds or less, do you see the, uh, you know, another agency being the PLA and the army uh, playing a role for some influence in the foreign policy agenda in Africa? I see it as being a bigger headache for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, and I see their their influence actually waning even further as a, as a result, largely because the PLA has such an important role domestically in China. But also, if you look at the kinds of companies that are actually um, vehicles for the PLA um, and their, their foreign investments um, or their foreign dealings with African countries, uh, again, their first recourse is, is to make money for the PLA themselves. And often there have been huge uh, diplomatic implications for the kinds of arms deals that have been negotiated between PLA-owned companies and, and African governments. Um, and even though the Minister of Foreign Affairs may not have been informed 
of the issue, they're the ones that have to clean up the political mess at the end. Um, and although we might not have time to go into it now, there's a very interesting case of uh, the Zimbabwean government procuring arms from China and the fact that that shipment, uh, it tried to dock in Mozambique, it tried to dock in South Africa, and it tried to dock in Namibia. And no, none of the dock workers in any of these countries would offload would offload um, the shipment because they realized that it was arms coming from China to Zimbabwe just before elections. Um, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs completely denied this um, because they didn't actually know anything about it. And when it, it came out that it actually... It was from the PLA. They had to do some very, very fancy footwork to try and um, sort out that situation. But it ended up being quite a lot of egg on the Minister of Foreign Affairs' face. And I think that this kind of incident is probably just set to, to increase in, um, in, in, in its number of incidences. Well, again, once again, highlights just how complex China's relationship is with Africa and how it really defies any kind of simple characterization. This is something that Kobus and I talk about endlessly on the show, uh, that the relationship is far more complicated than the narratives permit for it. Uh, Lucy, thank you so much for joining us again on the show. We're just so thrilled to have you on, uh, on all this week. If people want to follow what you're reading and what you're writing, what's the best way they can stay in touch with you? Um, I suppose that the best port of call would be my, my Twitter handle, L-U-C-Y-C-O-R-K-I-N. Um, and yeah, you're welcome to send me a direct message. Just follow what it is that I'm that I'm posting on and whining about or being thrilled about. And yeah, hope to see you um, in the Twitter space. Nice. Well, we hope to see you on our Facebook page. And you can join us at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Kobus, you and I are on there every single day, almost seven days a week, uh, posting some of the top stories from China Africa. Where else can people find you in addition to our Facebook page? I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. If you'd like to follow this podcast, the best way, of course, is on iTunes. But we're also on Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud. You can look for us. And we're also on the BlackBerry Network in South Africa. Do either of you use Blackberries? Does anybody use Blackberries anymore in South Africa? Uh, it's my, it's my, it's my iPhone now. Okay. It's a moving over to iPhone. Lucy, are you a BlackBerry uh, user? I'm actually a Samsung fan. Oh, okay. So I, I doubt anybody <laughs> in South Africa is using a BlackBerry anymore. But if they are, you can listen to our show on that network. Uh, until, uh, until next time, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again uh, very shortly with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. 